Speaking of privileges, we are privileged to be joined this morning um, by Dr. Robert J. Matz. He is the president of Hannibal LaGrange University. Uh, uh, two years ago, um, I had the pleasure of uh, joining the, uh, the board of Hannibal LaGrange and I'm uh, excited to get to serve there. And in those couple of years, we have, uh, as an institution, gone through uh, some hard times, uh, but better times are a foot for Hannibal LaGrange, and uh, one of the things I'm most excited about is Dr. Matz's leadership, um, just in the way that I've gotten to see him lead through this process. Uh, he leads with a, uh, a gentleness and a humility, uh, and at the same time, uh, an excitement about the future uh, of Hannibal LaGrange, and really an institution that um, we, we hope, as you may be aware, uh, the world of higher education is becoming a hair more, um, uh, liberal than it was, and I mean that in uh, not political terms, but uh, uh, worldview terms um, more than anything, than it was maybe 50 years ago. Uh, they probably lean a little more away from the Bible than they used to, but a, an institution like Hannibal Grange is working to correct that, uh, building Christian worldview uh, through the young men and women who are educated there. In fact, I know that a lot of you uh, graduated from Hannibal Grange. We're thankful for uh, what God used that institution to do in your lives. And so, um, Dr. Matt, you come and you lead us. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Chris. Well, it is my privilege and pleasure to be here with you this morning. As Chris mentioned, my name is Robert Matz. I'm president of Hannibal LaGrange University. Uh, my text this morning is going to be a text that is familiar to many of you, Matthew chapter 28. We'll be looking specifically at 16 through 20, the Great Commission. Before we go there, just a couple words of introduction and of thanksgiving. Specifically, as Chris mentioned, Robert Matz, I came to Hannibal LaGrange actually after you did, Chris. I've been there about a year and a half. Prior to that, I served at Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City, which I believe some of the youth were out there for the Ready Conference. Very familiar with the Ready Conference there. Uh, took place in that for a number of years while we were there. So I hope you had a great experience there. Midwestern and Hannibal LaGrange are sister schools in many ways. Uh, but they serve different functions. Midwestern is a Bible college. It is a seminary. It is to equip and train pastors, preachers, uh, teachers of the word, missionaries, and so grateful for that ministry that it has. Hannibal LaGrange's ministry is a little different. It is to equip normal church people. That's what we do. Normal church people equip them in every field of service that we can possibly equip them in and anchoring them in allegiance to Jesus Christ and in a biblical worldview. You as First Baptist Centralia, you give and you support the work of both our schools. You do. You do that through something called the cooperative program. And the cooperative program, I believe, is the greatest missions sending funding mechanism in the entire world. Now, it's kind of boring and generic there to talk about a funding mechanism. But through that, you support over 4,000 international missionaries. You support thousands of more church plants across North America. And you support the educational work that we do in training pastors, teachers, and every manner of vocational service. And you support Hannibal LaGrange. We are one of your state Baptist colleges, state Baptist universities here, because we believe as Baptists, we've always said that the disciple-making ministry of the church extends beyond what we do in the walls of our church, and we can do more together. 
And that's where Hannibal LaGrange University plays in. I'm the president there at HLG. I've been in that role now for four months. Originally came as the dean there a year and a half ago. And let me tell you, friends, though you may have read some headlines about our school in the last year and a half, God is doing a new work at Hannibal LaGrange. And we are excited to see the work he is doing. We have seen him provide in ways that can only be described as miraculous to start something new at HLG. So it's good to be here with you, be in your church, and be here with you as well, Chris. I so appreciate the invitation. As I said, my text is Matthew chapter 28. As you're turning there in your Bibles, I'd like to open with a story this morning I came across a number of years back about a Baptist church in South London. And Chris, I don't know if this is your custom, but in this Baptist church, I've only seen this happen in a few Baptist churches before, someone got up at the end of service, it was a large church, probably two, 3,000 people. Someone got up, came down, responded, and said, Pastor, I'd like to share a word of testimony. Now, that's always risky. You never know what's going to happen when somebody says, I'd like to share a word of testimony. But the pastor, for whatever reason, in this circumstance, said, you know what? You've got three minutes. Go. And so the man gets up, and here's his testimony. I've just moved to this area. I used to live in Sydney, Australia. Just a few months back, I was visiting some relatives. And as I was walking down George Street, you know where George Street is in Sydney, going from the business area out to the colonial area, a strange little white-haired man stepped out of a shop doorway, put a pamphlet in my hand and said, excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? I was astounded by these words. No one had ever asked me anything quite like that. I thanked him courteously, and all the way home to London, his words puzzled me. I called a friend. Thank God he was a Christian. Chris, you warned me the pulpit was tall, so... I feel like intimidated by it. I, 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 Y'all have really built a great pulpit for Chris. But I, as you can tell, Chris, I think you've got a good foot on me. So I'm going to come around just a little bit. And so forgive me for reading my notes in front of you for this illustration, for this story. But I feel like I can't see you at all if I'm behind this pulpit. So, so be patient with me. But I promise this is a good story and it's worth hearing. And I believe it, it beautifully introduces some ideas in the Great Commission. And so that's why I want to share it with you. So he was asked, excuse me, sir. If you were to die tonight, do you know you'd go to heaven? He was puzzled all the way home. And he called up a friend. And thank God, he says, the man was a Christian. And, so, and he, that man, led me to Christ. And that was the testimony. Baptist pastor is on a plane. He's going out to a conference, this time actually in Australia, Adelaide, Australia to be specific. In 10 days in the later, in the middle of a three-day series in a Baptist church there in Adelaide, a woman came up to him for some counseling. He wanted to establish where she stood with Christ. She said, I used to live in Sydney. And a couple months back, I was visiting some friends there doing a little bit of last-minute shopping down on George Street. 
A strange little white-haired man stepped out of a shop doorway, offered me a pamphlet, and said, Excuse me, madam, are you saved? If you die tonight, you go to heaven. I was disturbed by these words. When I, I got home to Adelaide, I knew this Baptist church was on the next block from me. I sought out the pastor, and he led me to Christ. So I'm telling you, I'm a Christian. The London pastor was now quite puzzled. Twice in two weeks, he had heard the exact same testimony. He then had another meeting in Perth, Australia. He flew from Adelaide to, to Perth. And he was there in that meeting. And as the teaching series was over, he went out to lunch with one of the elders there in that church. And as he began to talk with the elder there at lunch, he asked him how he became a Christian. The elder began to share this story. I grew up in this church, started coming here at the age of 15. I never made a commitment to Jesus Christ. I just hopped on the bandwagon, he said, like everyone else. Because of my business ability, I grew to a place of influence. I was on a business trip to Sydney just three years ago. An obnoxious, spiteful, Little man. Isn't it amazing how your perspective changes? An obnoxious, spiteful little man stepped out of a shop doorway, said, excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you died tonight, are you going to heaven? I tried to tell him I was a Baptist elder. He wouldn't listen to me. I was seething with anger all the way home from Sydney to Perth. I told my pastor, thinking he would sympathize but he agreed. He had been disturbed for years, knowing that I didn't have a relationship with Jesus, and he was right. My pastor led me to Jesus just three years ago. The London preacher flew home and was soon preaching at a series of conventions in a different district of England. At the close of the teaching series, four elderly pastors came up to him and explained how they too had encountered this elderly man on George Street 25 to 30 years prior and how God had used that incident to bring them to salvation as well. Next. Speaking of privileges, we are privileged to be joined this morning um, by Dr. Robert J. Matz. He is the president of Hannibal LaGrange University. Uh, uh, two years ago, um, I had the pleasure of uh, joining the, uh, the board of Hannibal LaGrange and I'm uh, excited to get to serve there. And in those couple of years, we have, uh, as an institution, gone through uh, some hard times, uh, but better times are afoot for Hannibal LaGrange. And uh, one of the things I'm most excited about is Dr. Matz's leadership. Um, just in the way that I've gotten to see him lead through this process, uh, he leads with a, uh, a gentleness and a humility, uh, and at the same time, uh, an excitement about the future uh, of Hannibal LaGrange, and uh, really an institution that um, we, we hope, as you may be aware, uh, the world of higher education is becoming a hair uh, more um, uh, liberal than it was, and I mean that in uh, not political terms, but uh, uh, worldview terms. Um, more than anything than it was maybe 50 years ago. Uh, they probably lean a little more away from the Bible than they used to, but a, an institution like Hannibal Grange is working 
to correct that uh, building Christian worldview uh, through the young men and women who were educated there. In fact, I know that a lot of you uh, graduated from Hannibal Grange. We're thankful for uh, what God used that institution to do in your lives. And so, um, Dr. Matt, you come and you lead us. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Chris. Well, it is my privilege and pleasure to be here with you this morning. As Chris mentioned, my name is Robert Matz. I'm president of Hannibal LaGrange University. Uh, my text this morning is going to be a text that is familiar to many of you, Matthew chapter 28. We'll be looking specifically at 16 through 20, the Great Commission. Before we go there, just a couple words of introduction and of thanksgiving. Specifically, as Chris mentioned, Robert Matz. Speaking of privileges, we are privileged to be joined this morning um, by Dr. Robert J. Matz. He is the president of Hannibal LaGrange University uh, uh, two years ago. Um, I had the pleasure of uh, joining the, uh, the board of Hannibal LaGrange and I'm uh, excited to get to serve there. And in those couple of years, we have, uh, as an institution, gone through uh, some hard times. Uh, but speaking of privileges, we are privileged to be joined this morning um, by Dr. Robert J. Matz. He is the president of Hannibal LaGrange University uh, uh, two years ago. Um, I had the pleasure of uh, joining the, uh, the board of Hannibal LaGrange, and I'm uh, excited to get to serve there. And in those couple of years, we have, uh, as an institution, gone through uh, some hard times, uh, but better times are afoot for Hannibal LaGrange. And uh, one of the things I'm most excited about is Dr. Matz's leadership, um, just in the way that I've gotten to see him lead through this process. Uh, he leads with a, uh, a gentleness and a humility, uh, and at the same time, uh, an excitement about the future uh, of Hannibal LaGrange and really an institution that um, we, we hope, as you may be aware, uh, the world of higher education is becoming a hair more um, liberal than it was, and I mean that in uh, not political terms, but uh, uh, worldview terms. Um, more than anything than it was maybe 50 years ago. Uh, they probably lean a little more away from the Bible than they used to, but a, an institution like Hannibal Grange is working to correct that, uh, building Christian worldview uh, through the young men and women who are educated there. In fact, I know that a lot of you uh, graduated from Hannibal Grange. We're thankful for uh, what God used that institution to do in your lives. And so, um, Dr. Matt, you come and you lead us. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Chris. Well, it is my privilege and pleasure to be here with you this morning. As Chris mentioned, my name is Robert Matz. I'm president of Hannibal LaGrange University. Uh, my text this morning is going to be a text that is familiar to many of you, Matthew chapter 28. We'll be looking specifically at 16 through 20, the Great Commission. Before we go there, just a couple words of introduction and of thanksgiving. Specifically, as Chris mentioned, Robert Matz, I came to Hannibal LaGrange actually after you did, Chris. I've been there about a year and a half. Prior to that, I served at Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City, which I believe some of the youth were out there for the Ready Conference, very familiar with the Ready Conference there. Uh, took place in that for a number of years while we were there, so I hope you had a great experience there. Midwestern and Hannibal LaGrange are sister schools in many ways. Uh, but they serve different functions. Midwestern is a Bible college. It is a seminary. It is to equip and train pastors, preachers, uh, teachers of the word, missionaries, and so grateful for that ministry that it has. Hannibal LaGrange's ministry is a little different. It is to equip normal church people. That's what we do. Normal church people equip them in every field of service that we can possibly equip them in and anchoring them 
in allegiance to Jesus Christ and in a biblical worldview. You as First Baptist Centralia, you give and you support the work of both our schools. You do. You do that through something called the Cooperative Program. And the Cooperative Program, I believe, is the greatest missions sending funding mechanism in the entire world. Now, it's kind of boring and generic there to talk about a funding mechanism. But through that, you support over 4,000 international missionaries. You support thousands of more church plants across North America. And you support the educational work that we do in training pastors, teachers, and every manner of vocational service. And you support Hannibal LaGrange. We are one of your state Baptist colleges, state Baptist universities here, because we believe as Baptists, we've always said that the disciple-making ministry of the church extends beyond what we do in the walls of our church, and we can do more together. And that's where Hannibal LaGrange University plays in. I'm the president there at HLG. I've been in that role now for four months. Originally came as the dean there a year and a half ago. And let me tell you, friends, though you may have read some headlines about our school in the last year and a half, God is doing a new work at Hannibal LaGrange. And we are excited to see the work he is doing. We have seen him provide in ways that can only be described as miraculous to start something new at HLG. So it's good to be here with you, be in your church, and be here with you as well, Chris. I so appreciate the invitation. As I said, my text is Matthew chapter 28. As you're turning there in your Bibles, I'd like to open with a story this morning I came across a number of years back about a Baptist church in South London. And Chris, I don't know if this is your custom, but in this Baptist church, I've only seen this happen in a few Baptist churches before, someone got up at the end of service, it was a large church, probably two, 3,000 people. Someone got up, came down, responded, and said, Pastor, I'd like to share a word of testimony. Now, that's always risky. You never know what's going to happen when somebody says, I'd like to share a word of testimony. But the pastor, for whatever reason, in this circumstance, said, you know what? You've got three minutes. Go. And so the man gets up, and here's his testimony. I've just moved to this area. I used to live in Sydney, Australia. Just a few months back, I was visiting some relatives. And as I was walking down George Street, you know where George Street is in Sydney, going from the business area out to the colonial area, a strange little white-haired man stepped out of a shop doorway, put a pamphlet in my hand and said, excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? I was astounded by these words. No one had ever asked me anything quite like that. I thanked him courteously, and all the way home to London, his words puzzled me. I called a friend. Thank God he was a Christian. Chris, you warned me the pulpit was tall, so... I feel like intimidated by it. I, 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 Y'all have really built a great pulpit for Chris. But I, as you can tell, Chris, I think you've got a good foot on me. So I'm going to come around just a little bit. And so forgive me for reading my notes in front of you for this illustration, for this story. 
but I feel like I can't see you at all if I'm behind this pulpit. So, so be patient with me. But I promise this is a good story and it's worth hearing. And I believe it, it beautifully introduces some ideas in the Great Commission. And so that's why I want to share it with you. So he was asked, excuse me, sir. If you were to die tonight, do you know you'd go to heaven? He was puzzled all the way home. And he called up a friend and thank God, he says, the man was a Christian. And, so, and he, that man, led me to Christ. That was the testimony. Baptist pastor is on a plane. He's going out to a conference, this time actually in Australia, Adelaide, Australia to be specific. And 10 days in the le le later, in the middle of a three-day series in a Baptist church there in Adelaide, a woman came up to him for some counseling. He wanted to establish where she stood with Christ. She said, I used to live in Sydney. And a couple months back, I was visiting some friends there doing a little bit of last-minute shopping down on George Street. A strange little white-haired man stepped out of a shop doorway, offered me a pamphlet, and said, Excuse me, madam, are you saved? If you die tonight, you go to heaven. I was disturbed by these words. When I, I got home to Adelaide, I knew this Baptist church was on the next block from me. I sought out the pastor. And he led me to Christ. So I'm telling you, I'm a Christian. The London pastor was now quite puzzled. Twice in two weeks, he had heard the exact same testimony. He then had another meeting in Perth, Australia. He flew from Adelaide to, to Perth. And he was there in that meeting. And as the teaching series was over, he went out to lunch with one of the elders there in that church. And as he began to talk with the elder there at lunch, he asked him how he became a Christian. The elder began to share his story. I grew up in this church, started coming here at the age of 15. I never made a commitment to Jesus Christ. I just hopped on the bandwagon, he said, like everyone else. Because of my business ability, I grew to a place of influence. I was on a business trip to Sydney just three years ago. An obnoxious, spiteful little man. Isn't it amazing how your perspective changes? An obnoxious, spiteful little man stepped out of a shop doorway, said, excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you died tonight, are you going to heaven? I tried to tell him I was a Baptist elder. He wouldn't listen to me. I was seething with anger all the way home from Sydney to Perth. I told my pastor, thinking he would sympathize, but he agreed. He had been disturbed for years, knowing that I didn't have a relationship with Jesus, and he was right. My pastor led me to Jesus just three years ago. The London preacher flew home and was soon preaching at a series of conventions in a different district of England. At the close of the teaching series, four elderly pastors came up to him and explained how they too had encountered this elderly man on George Street 25 to 30 years prior and how God had used that incident to bring them to salvation as well. Next, he was at a, a, he was at a convention of naval chaplains in Atlanta, Georgia. Here for three days, he spoke to over a thousand naval chaplains. 
Afterwards, the chaplain general took him out for a meal. And he asked the chaplain, how did you become a Christian? It was miraculous, the chaplain said. I was a sailor on a naval battleship and I was living a wicked life. We were doing exercises in the South Pacific and we docked at Sydney Harbor for replenishments. We hit King's Cross with a vengeance. I was blind, drunk, got on the wrong bus, got off George Street. As I got off the bus, I saw a ghost of a man jump out in front of me, pushed a pamphlet in my hand and said, Sailor, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? The fear of God hit me immediately. I was shocked sober, ran back to the ship and sought out the chaplain. He led me to Christ. I soon began to prepare for the ministry under his guidance. I am now in charge of a thousand chaplains who are bent on helping others come to know Jesus as well. He would share this, pastor goes on, he shares this story to a group of missionaries in India, in a remote part of northeast India. Afterwards, he shares the story and several of the, the missionaries there come up and say they too had encountered this man on George Street. Why do I share this story with you? I think the question of that man raises two questions for us that I wish us to consider this morning. The first is his simple question. I know most of you, if you're here this morning, know the answer to this question, but perhaps you don't. It's his question. Excuse me, sir. Excuse me, ma'am. Are you saved? If you were to die tonight, do you know that you go to heaven. If you don't know the answer to that question, in a few minutes we will have a time of response. This would be a time to come to your pastor and talk with him and say, I don't know the answer. And maybe get with him after service or get with some of the other leaders here after service so that you can seek counsel and you can know the answer to that question in your life. But the second part, for those of you who would say, yes, I know I'm right with Jesus Christ. I know I'm saved. My question is this, what are you doing about that? Who are you telling about that? How does that message of Jesus' salvation, of him being your hope in life and death, guys, correct me, is that by Matt Marker? Does that sound right, worship team? Yeah, I went to college with Matt. He was in a Bible study with me. And, um, and what a great hymn of faith that is. And I can tell you, knowing Matt, knowing his wife Erica, um, knowing them well, he's a man whose hope is in life and death. In life and death is Jesus alone. And if you know Jesus, if he is your hope in life and in death, as we sang just a few minutes ago, who are you telling others about that? How does that impact you? You don't have to do it like this little old man on George Street. That's not the only way to share the gospel by any stretch. But sometimes I think we hear these stories of how people did it, and maybe we have some sort of visceral reaction. Ooh, I don't want to do it that way. And then we do nothing to let anybody know, to share with others that Jesus has changed our lives. 
And I think as we consider the close of Jesus, closing words of Jesus' ministry here in the Gospel of Matthew, we see here in the text the answer to six different aspects of what it means to be about what Jesus is about, which is about making disciples. Making disciples. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. A text I trust is familiar to many of you. And I will read it here. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible, which if I gathered correctly is the translation y'all are using in the pew as well. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Heavenly Father, please speak to us now through your word. Convict us. And Lord God, let us apply your word to every aspect of our life. Let us be found as disciple makers. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text in front of us has one overriding word in it in the Greek. There is one primary command that Jesus gives his followers at the very end of his ministry. But as we think about the Great Commission, and as you look at it in the Greek, there is one word, that's actually two words in our English, that drives this text. And it is the word Matthias, or make disciples. Make disciples. That is what Jesus is saying. It is not go, that is a participle describing how we make disciples. It is not baptizing, it is not teaching. Those are participles describing how we make disciples. Jesus gathers his disciples around him, his apostles around him. And after he has come back, at that moment he said, before they had any idea he was going to die, and before they had any idea he was going to come back, when the confusion was still very near and the rumors of his resurrection were still nothing more than what has happened. They remember back in Matthew chapter 26 where Matthew records for us that Jesus is going to show up again. And he gathers them together. And Matthew's gospel concludes the so what of the whole book of Matthew, of the presentation as the gospel of Matthew presents of Jesus as king, of the one who came to the Jews, which is Matthew's primary audience. And he says, make disciples. The so what of Matthew's gospel are those two words. It is that command. And for Matthew, if you are to follow through allegiance to King Jesus, the way you do that is by making 
disciples. Six aspects in the text of making disciples. First, I want you to see here what Matthew says keeps us or implies keeps us from making disciples. You catch it there? Verses 16 and 17. The 11 disciples, notice it's 11, not 12. Judas is gone. It's an aspect of sorrow there. There's one who is not there who should be there. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped. But some doubted. Some doubted. Isn't it interesting that Matthew includes that detail? Why do you think Matthew includes that? Second time in his gospel that Matthew uses this word doubt. There's only one other time in his gospel he uses it. It's Matthew chapter 14. I'll recall it to you. I'll pick up the story beginning in verse 25. Ah, 24. Meanwhile, the boat was already some distance from the land, battered by the waves because the wind was against them. Verse 25, Jesus came toward them walking on the sea very early in the morning. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them, Have courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Verse 28, Lord, if it's you, Peter answered him, Command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, Come. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him, and said, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Only other time we see the word doubt. Only other time Matthew uses this word is right here. The incident of Peter walking on the water. And why does Peter doubt? It says in the text, he sees the wind, he sees the waves, he feels the water rushing in. And there's Jesus and he's walking on the water and he's good and he can sustain him and he can carry him. And the miracle is actually happening. And yet the circumstances are too great. They're far too fearful. And the context here of Matthew 28, our primary text. Pilate has just issued the command that perhaps to spread the word, the disciples stole the body. They see Jesus standing there in front of him, his nail-scarred hands there. They recall the crucifixion he has just endured. And no doubt, they're afraid. If we follow him, will they do to us what they just did to him? If we go and tell people about Jesus, if we seek to make disciples, will people think I'm a nut? Will I lose my position at work? Will I be labeled an intolerant bigot? What will people think of me? What will happen to me? 
It's my very life, my livelihood. Is it in danger if I seek to make disciples? They're doubting because they're wondering what's going to happen if they follow him. They're scared. And I think if we're honest, many of us are scared too at times. But may I tell you something, friends? Jesus is big enough to handle all your fears. You know what keeps us from making disciples? I would propose to you, it starts and has its root very, very often in doubt. But what does Jesus say in response? Verse 18, Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Okay? Quick poll. How many of you in the room know someone who's passed away? Okay, most of us. I would trust that each of us in the room is familiar with the concept of death. All right, second question. How many of us in the room know somebody who's passed away, who's come back from the dead three days later? Jesus doesn't count. <laughs> huh? Anyone? Death has been described as the king of all terrors. Existentially, it is a step into the great unknown. It is that from which one journeys, from which there is no return. The greatest fear any of us can have, at least from a human perspective, is death. And here stands in front of them one brutally executed, one from whom there was no hope, from whom everything should have fallen apart afterwards. And he has come back from the dead. And he says to them, all authority. I have conquered that which is unconquerable. You've seen it. They have seen him work the miracles. They have seen him bring the dead back to life to heal the sick, the lame, the leper, to restore what could not be restored. And now they have seen him conquer the unconquerable. And he says to them, all authority. As a kid, there was a cartoon show I really liked. It had the same plot over and over and over again. It was called He-Man. Anyone remember the cartoon show He-Man? Chris, I see your hand there. I appreciate that. Let me tell you about He-Man. If you've ever seen one episode of He-Man, you've basically seen, as best my memory remembers here, all of them. Because He-Man, every episode proceeded exactly the same way. He-Man had this sword. I, don't even I think it had a name. I don't even remember what it's called. But he had this sword and he had an enemy. I believe his enemy's name was Skeletor. Does that sound right? My, I, I, and every episode, somehow, somewhere along the way, he'd lose his sword. And then like Skeletor would get a hold of him and he'd be imprisoned and he'd be getting the fire beat out of him. Like he had no shot. But every episode, somehow, towards the end of the episode, he'd get his sword back. 
And then He-Man, what he would do is he'd pick up his sword, he'd hold it over his head, and he'd say, I have the power! And that's how he'd say it, too. Want to be true to form, right? Uh, I have the power. And then you know what he'd do? He would clean house. All the forces of evil, all the forces of Skeletor, they didn't stand a chance. Friend, right now, it may feel like, it may look like the forces against you are insurmountable. Like you have no hope and you have no chance. But as much as a silly cartoon character can clean house and it resonates with us on some level that good has to ultimately triumph over evil, we know that the greatest evils this world have, has will not triumph. That Jesus has already defeated death. And we are just waiting for him to consummate what he has already started and bring his kingdom to fruition. And when that happens, all the forces of evil, all those who have resisted him will bend the knee. Because he is the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. And how do we know it? We know it because he defeated death. Because he is the risen one. That's the context of this command. It is his resurrection. It is right after his death and resurrection. And he says to his disciples, in effect, and he says to you and me, in effect, oh, it may be scary in the moment. You may have doubts in the moment. But make disciples anyway. Because I'm the one who has all the authority. Friends, we see in this text what keeps us from making disciples. It's our doubts, it's our fears. But we also see, second, why we should make disciples anyway. It is because Jesus has all the authority. And we should bend the knee to him. Third, third we see here in the text where we should make disciples where we should make disciples looking back in the passage again Matthew chapter 28 verse 19 go 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 where should we make disciples sometimes I already told you we think of this as the main verb of this main idea of the great commission it is not make disciples is the main idea. But this tells us where we should make disciples. It is where we go. Some have said that this could be rendered, since it is a participle, as you are going. Others have pushed back and said it shouldn't be rendered that way because it loses the command force of the text. Either way, here's the big idea. Go make disciples. You can't make disciples when you don't go anywhere. Now, where do you go? Many of you are going to go to a restaurant out to eat after church today. You're looking for ways to make disciples there. Some of you are going to go to a Bible study class later today. Be looking to make disciples there. Some of you are going to go to work tomorrow. Most of you, I venture, or school. 
look to make, seek to make disciples there. Everywhere you go. And not only just locally do we go, we see here in the text who, fourth, we should seek to make disciples. Where do we make disciples? It's everywhere we go. Who do we seek to make disciples? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Of all nations. Who is it we are seeking to make disciples? Well, remember, I've already told you, this is a book, the Gospel of Matthew is, that is written to the Jews. We know that from the genealogy in the first chapters there. Where does it start? It doesn't start with Adam and Eve like Luke does. It starts with Abraham. His audience is a Jewish audience. And when you understand the mindset of a first century Jew, you understand that they understand themselves as God's chosen people. They are the means by which God's deliverance is to occur. And how does it occur? Well, for most of them, it occurs through keeping the law. And so, in order to be made right with God, you have to become Jewish. And here Jesus says, in his words to the Jews, his closing thought here, make disciples of all nations. Friends, is there someone in your life you would say God could never have anything to do with them? Because that's how the Jews thought. God can't have anything to do with the Gentiles. He can't have anything to do with the pagans. Is there someone who's too far away, you think, for you to ever get the gospel to? Jesus says here to the Jews and to the Gentiles, but specifically in this context, the Jews, given that's Matthew's audience, make disciples of those people. The people who aren't like you. The people who don't show up in synagogue on, a sat on the Sabbath. Or who don't show up at church on Sunday morning. Who is it that God is after? Who is it that he wants us to make disciples of? It is everybody. And God's plan A for reaching the world, and there is no plan B, is the church of is his church, it is his people going forward and making disciples of everyone. This is how in his sovereignty he has chosen to reach the world. And the question is, are we going to be part of what he is about? Or are we going to sit at home and wallow in our doubt and fear and refuse to be about what he is about? And then... Fifth, so first, what is it that keeps us from making disciples? It's doubt, it's fear. Why? Second, why should we make disciples anyway? Because Jesus is in charge, he has all the authority, and we're accountable to him, and he's going to take care of those fears and doubts. Third, where should we make disciples? It's everywhere we go. Fourth, who should we make disciples? It is everyone. Fifth, how do we make disciples? How do we make disciples? And we see two aspects of this here in the text. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. Two aspects. First aspect, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism in the New Testament. And so for in this case, you'd be just reflecting back on the work of John the Baptist. It's what you're doing here. It's an initiatory identification ritual. It is initiatory and it is identified. John the Baptist is the first one to initiate baptism in the New Testament. What does he do? He goes out in the wilderness and he says, Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Right, that's what he does. That's his ministry. What do people do? They come out to him. And if they accept his message, they go in the water and they are baptized. So it initiates them. It prepares them for the kingdom of God. And it identifies them with his message. Baptism is not salvific. Please don't misunderstand what is being said here. But it is the culminating event of you saying you belong to Jesus. In Luke's gospel, when Luke writes of it, he has the tax collectors come out to, uh, and, and the, the soldiers come out, and he says to the tax collectors there in his gospel, John the Baptist does, he said, they say, what should we do? He says, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. They say, what should we do? He says, don't take people, more money from them than you should. He says to the soldiers, don't oppress people. And then what does he do? They're immediately baptized thereafter. It is an initiatory event. So when Jesus tells us to make disciples, he is telling us to make disciples in such a way that they go public with the fact that they are Jesus' disciples. All right, I'm married. My wife's Jessica. She's playing the piano at our church this morning. Otherwise, she'd be here, but she was on worship team duty. So she's there with my daughter this morning. This is my wedding ring. She gave me about four years ago because I lost my original one. But she gave me my original one 17 years ago, right? Now, if I go around without this on, I'm still married to my wife. But I'm probably trying to communicate something I shouldn't be communicating. Baptism functions in that way. It communicates to a watching world I belong to Jesus. My allegiance is to him. And don't miss here, there's a Trinitarian reference. Who is your identity to? It's, it's to the triune God. Baptize in the name. That's singular, one name. How many names do we get? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Christian faith is an unapologetically Trinitarian faith. That there is one God who we see three different distinct persons. It is a mystery in the truest sense of the word. Meaning that apart from God revealing it, we would not have any way to understand it. 
And yet that is what we see. One name, singular, three names. Each equally God, distinct persons, each with distinct functions and roles in our life, each equally involved in salvation, each equally involved in creation, each equally involved in sanctification and glorification in the whole of Christian history and of world history. And yet each functioning, acting in distinct different ways. And when we are baptized, we are baptized into the into identification with Jesus and identification with the Trinity as a sign of our allegiance unto him. So first aspect of it is baptism, which is initiatory. This is where that evangelistic command comes to fulfillment. It's where that little old man down there on George Street is saying, excuse me, sir, excuse me, ma'am. Are you saved? If you died tonight, would you go to heaven? That leads, the ultimate culmination of that is baptism. And friend, let me say this for a second. If you're here this morning and you've never gone public with your faith in Jesus through the waters of baptism, I'd encourage you this morning, come see your pastor. Come talk with your leadership here in the church. And make it a priority to go public. Quit hiding from the fact that you belong to Jesus. Second, teaching to observe. Notice what Jesus does not say here. He doesn't say teaching to know. He doesn't, does he? Oftentimes, I think we want the Christian life to just be an intellectual pursuit. I come to service on Sunday morning. I go to Bible study. I learn about Jesus. But he says, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. In other words, just as Jesus has done and commanded us to do, we are to teach one another to do. How long does this take? Friends, this is a lifelong activity. If you think you have arrived as a Christian, if you think you, have no, you know all there is to know, I challenge you, are you doing all there is that Jesus has called us to do? This is a lifelong pursuit and it is something we need one another for. Now, I'm going to give my shameless plug because I'm president of the university. That's part of my job. I'm supposed to do that. Here it is. There is so much that God has called us to do in so many aspects of our lives that we want to submit to him. The role of a university like Hannibal LaGrange, the role of Hannibal LaGrange explicitly and directly here is to come alongside you in that educational process and says that, you know, now so often in university life, thinking life, we think, oh, I know my things about God and I know my things about the world and we put them in two separate categories. But Jesus wants us to observe what he says to do in every aspect of our lives. And the university stands as an auxiliary, as a support to the churches, or it should, 
and equipping us towards that end. And that's what Hannibal LaGrange does, and why, part of the reason I am so proud to serve there. So, two aspects of how we make disciples. How we make disciples. Baptizing, which has behind it the evangelistic idea that culminates in going public in the water where one declares, I'm dead, Romans chapter 6, I'm dead to my old way of life, I've been raised up to a whole new life in Jesus. And then teaching to observe all that Jesus has commanded you. And then finally, sixth point, when should we make disciples? When should we make disciples? Notice Jesus' closing words here, verse 20. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. When does Jesus want us to make disciples? To the very end of the age. You know, you'll occasionally encounter a very strange idea out there, and it is this, that this great commission was only for the apostles. But here, even in the great commission itself, Jesus basically says, or does say, that this is for until the end of the age. In other words, until he shows back up, we are to keep seeking to make disciples. About 10 months later, that London pastor was preaching in Sydney. At the close of the meeting, he asked his host, he says to him, he relays to him all the stories he's had about this man on George Street and said, do you know who this man is? He responds back to him. He says, yes, his name is Mr. Jenner. J-E-N-N-E-R. He says, his name is Mr. Jenner. I don't think he does it anymore because he's too old. But would you like to go visit him? And so the pastor from London there says, yes, I'd love to go meet this man. And so together they go to an apartment there in Sydney and they go up the stairs to this little one or two room apartment there and they knock on the door and Mr. Jenner greets them. And the London pastor relays there that he's so old and so frail he offers to have tea with them. Clearly British, I guess they do the same in Australia, I don't know. Uh, but he offers to have tea with them and the pastor says yes, and he brings the tea forward, and he's so old and so frail, his hand is slopping the tea out of the plate and out of the saucer because it's too hard for him to carry. And the London pastor begins to relay the stories that he's encountered over the last nine, ten months of this little old man's ministry. And... Um, the little old man looks back at him and he, he's, with tears in his eyes, he begins to say, can I share my story with you? So I was a, a soldier, or I, I was a sailor on an Australian battleship during the Second World War. And um, I was awful. I was a terrible person. And one day I just really hit the wall. I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know what I was about. I was just a wicked, terrible person. 
And one of the other sailors on the boat there that I had just given his words, literal hell to him, was there for me. He began to share Jesus with me. Share with me how Jesus came and died for me in my sin. And that if I surrendered to him, I could have new life and be born again. And Jesus saved me. And I, I was so thankful and so amazed that in that moment I made a commitment to Jesus that I would at least in a simple witness try to share him with at least generous words here. Ten people a day. That was my goal. I wasn't legalistic about it. And some days I didn't get there. And other days I'd seek to make it up a little bit. But in these 30 years I've been doing this, the best place I found was out on George Street where there were so many people walking back and forth. And in the years I've done this, only a handful of times have people come to me and shared with me that they became a Christian as a result of my ministry. And they prayed together and we thanked them. Friends, I think this question's a good one for each of us. Excuse me, sir. Excuse me, ma'am. Are you saved? If you were to die tonight, do you know you'd go to heaven? In just a second, we're going to have a time of response. I'd love the opportunity to pray with you. I know your pastor would as well. I know we've got a song we're going to sing as well. If you don't know the answer to that question, I want to encourage you. Get with your pastor. I'd love the chance to pray with you, either in this time or at a later time. And then as well, if you do know the answer to that question, and you know it's a yes, I challenge to you is what are you doing to make disciples? of the one who your allegiance is to. Pray with me. Gracious Father, I thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. I thank you for his love for us. I thank you that he is the risen one who has overcome death and has overcome the grave and has overcome sin. I thank you that in him there is Heavenly Father, I pray that each person in this room would be spreading the news of Jesus and of his love. I pray that as you have brought names to mind of people who do not know you, that they know that they would be a faithful witness to. And Heavenly Father, I pray for anyone here today who does not know you. That today would be a day of returning to you. Of coming to you. Repenting of his or her sins. Trusting in your son Jesus for salvation. And committing themselves to following him as Lord. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.